Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the work that you give us to do, like Nigel. Thank you for J.R. Tolkien, who used his creativity and his mind when he wrote so many stories that parallel your great truths in Scripture. And I pray for this, us this morning as um, you take my humble attempts at understanding your word and we apply it to our daily lives. We ask all this thing, these things in your name. Amen. Okay, 35 years ago, a young engineer entered the workforce. He asked himself a nagging question. How do I please my Heavenly Father in my work? How do I respond to his love for me? I grew up in a two-tiered system of sacred and secular vocations, where sacred really fell above what was then labeled as secular. But in college, I uncovered the truths about vocation discovered in the Reformation. It was transformative to have heard that the great reformer Martin Luther once said, it is God himself who milks the cows through the milkmaid. It put a whole new spin and perspective and mindset on my daily tasks and my daily routine. Through you and me, God does the laundry. He rapes blogs. He produces annual reports, shovels snow off the driveway, teaches small children to ride bikes, designs marketing materials and makes sales presentations, and even takes elderly parents to the doctor. Well, today I want to share with you some of the ideas I've been able to develop on my own quest to answer that question and delight in God through my work over the past 35 years, not to earn my salvation, but to respond to it with love in kind. So this morning, if you're the kind of person that likes to take notes and has an outline, I have three big ideas for you this morning. Genesis 1, 2, and 3, work past, work present, and work future. Work past, present, and future. If you will, telescope, microscope, and broken scope. Okay, Genesis 1, we find God's perspective on work. This is the telescope. And so if we can put Genesis 1, 26 to 28 up on the screen, this is prior to the fall. And if you're joining us this morning, we've been going through Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we're trying to get different facets and different perspectives and different truths and nuggets out of Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And this morning I'm focusing on the idea of work. So in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Well, in Genesis 1, we see that God is a worker. He is the original creative in the original makerspace. In earlier verses in chapter 1, we see that he is speaks and he sees. His speaking always is connected to an outward action that happens after he speaks. The nature of creation is that it's always changing always moving, always there's outward activity. And then his seeing is always reflecting on what he has created, that the things that were created were good, 
when he created them, and then also sometimes potentially bad when humans get involved at times. Goodness was measured by whether or not the creator let, created order led to more life, harmonious relationships, and flourishing in the creation. This is inward reflection by the Trinity. And so we see this pattern of outward action and inward reflection repeated over and over again in Genesis 1. We also see in Genesis 1.27 that the Trinity created humanity in their image and likeness. To take after the Trinity and also pattern ourselves after their nature and character. So how should we therefore pattern our outward action after God here? Well, Genesis 1, 27 and 28 gives five instructions for the first person, who in this moment represents both Adam and Eve. First, be fruitful. God's design was to give us conditions that would automatically result in fruitfulness. Your work would result in fruitfulness. No matter what you did, the garden would automatically grow. It would produce benefit. This is grace and love that we come to understand in the New Testament that is undeserved, but it flows out of God towards humanity. The next four commands determine the characteristics of that fruitfulness. First, he says, be fruitful and multiply. The work that we do should benefit humanity. The work we do should result not just in additive gains, but in multiplicative gains. Well, you say, Rob, what does that mean? I'm not a math major. Like other creatures, you and I, we have the ability to pick berries. We get our own food, we um, go and, and pick them up and we eat them. But humans also have the ability, the unique ability to make tools that pick berries. Let's call these things that pick berries, berry pickers. And each generation is commanded to multiply and bring their creative improvements to bear upon the prior generation's berry pickers to create berry pickers and then reflect on those berry pickers again and again to reflect on what was created prior. So now if I'm commanded to multiply, I don't just pick berries merely for myself. Because of my ability to create tools, I have technology and technology that can pick berries for my neighbors, not just one or two, but hundreds and thousands. So technology in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It helps us multiply. So I see this call to multiply as a nod to us human beings, just like the Trinity, to have the ability to reflect on our work, and that reflection leads us to tool making and technology, to see the voids and then fill those same voids with our creativity. So thirdly, we're called here to be fruitful and to fill the earth, right? The Trinity creates the palette, the space, the room for humanity's flourishing and filling. The Trinity asks us to partner with them in filling the created voids within our own communities to reflect the pre-existent creativity and community already found in the Trinity themselves. Our fruitfulness is a call to move outward and procreate and build into others, a theology of overflow, a theology of plenty, not scarcity, a theology of welcome and hospitality. At God's table, there's always room for more children. So far, God has been seeing the voids and doing the filling, but on this first day after creation, the Trinity asks humanity to partner with them in the filling. Fourthly, we're called to be fruitful and to subdue. So some people view this negatively, but we get clues to this word subdue in Philippians 3.21, 
for Christ subdues or manages and controls all things under his headship, under his rule. Subduing gives us deliberate form to human fruitfulness, and it helps us manage growth, tell us what that growth might look like if it is good, and it leads to the flourishing of others. Subduing means that we must think deeply about our context and our environment to manage it for good and not evil. Finally, we're called to be fruitful and to rule righteously over that which we've been given to manage. This is kingdom language and heavenly kingdom, not earthly. Katie talked about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father and as a king. When we think of kingship, we often think of Jesus as a conquering king. But there's also a headship and a kingship where we want to think of God's kingdom as a household where the ruler ensures that everyone is cared for rather than as a military kingdom where enemies are conquered in conquest. This is leadership. Leaders take ongoing responsibility for their work and the things that they have been given to manage. Okay, big idea number one is concluded. Big idea number two, we're transitioning here. Our context here is Genesis 2. This is a human perspective on works, what people would call the second creation story. We go from God's telescope to the human microscope on the garden. What's going on in the garden? So Genesis 2, 5 through 7. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Hebrew here says that clay man, the first human, that's what Adam means, was created and placed in the Garden of Eden at that time when all the other plants had not even sprouted. I want to share with you a couple of significant nuances here that you may have not have thought about. First, humanity was not created. Humanity was formed, crafted, molded, shaped, and life was breathed into that um, shaped humanity by God as a self-reflection of what he does. In chapter 2, we see God as a creative. Again, this time, he fashions himself as a sculptor, intimately involved in creating humans in and after his and their own image. As his creation, humans are a type of self-portrait in clay, created to reflect the Trinity in totality. The first human was formed as a hollow clay vessel by the second person of the Trinity, out of the non-living dust and water spoken into existence by, existence by the first person of the Trinity. And then life came into that form clay pot when the second person of the Trinity breathed the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, into their lungs. The Holy Spirit brought life to that which was non-living. So don't take me too literally there, but also don't take me not literally there. God, the Trinity, was active in the forming of humanity, and we are to reflect the Trinity in all we do. This is a mind-blowing reality. As the Trinity created us as a partner in their work to fill, flourish, and inhabit the garden. They have called the human and us to manage and lead, to fill not just the garden, but also to move out beyond the garden where no shrub existed yet. 
the human would help craft and mold and work the garden, reflect on what they had done and do it again and again. The human would help push the ordered creation outside the garden into the wilderness in partnership with the Trinity. A three-way divine partnership creating a human partnership as an extension of their work and their desire to not work alone. Our work is designed to be done in community with God and also with one another. The Trinity creates the conditions not just for human flourishing, but for the flourishing of the whole of creation for all time, the garden and beyond, so that God's glory would multiply and fill the whole world. Okay, I have a picture for you here as well of Adam and Eve um, being created from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Italy. I love this picture, um, or sculpture, because it shows Eve being pulled from the side and separated from Adam, the man. It also shows the Trinity present in the operating theater as the second person of the Trinity pulls the woman out and separates the two sides of the human. So let's go back to the Genesis, uh, the microscope of Genesis 2, the human perspective. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and care for it. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helpmate, and the word here in Hebrew is ezer, or someone who assists the human in battle and rule, was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's sides or ribs and then he closed up that place with flesh. And then the Lord God made, and the word here is built up, which is also another pottery term, if you will. He's taking a piece of clay and he's building it up into another human. He built up a woman, an Isha, from the side he had taken out of the man, the Ish. And he brought her to the man. Okay, I want you to look at the Hebrew words for man and woman that are found in this passage that help us out this morning in understanding what God the potter is doing. So at the top left, we have ish or man. At the top right, isha or woman. And you can see they're very similar words except for two characters. If you take the similar letters out in Hebrew, the letters in common, you actually come up with the word fire. And so when you take clay and you put and fire it, fire it up, what happens? It becomes a beautiful created vessel meant to show the artist's handiwork. Now take the, word, the separate letters out. If you put those two separate letters and the letters that aren't in common together, what do you come up with? You come up with the author's name, Yah. It's God's name that is imposed on the man and woman together. So alone, they don't fully reflect God, but together they fully reflect God uh, in what they are in common and also his handiwork. So Ish and Isha both reveal God. We are God's workmanship together. He is the potter and we are the clay. Adam is never called man or Ish until the Isha side is taken from him, fired and built up. Okay, back to Genesis 2, verse 15. God commands men and women together as helpmates for one another to work the garden 
and also to care and teach the garden. These things might sound alike, but there's a critical difference here when you look at the Hebrew. First, let's talk about working the garden. Here, the Hebrew word is avodah. Everybody say that word with me. Avodah, okay? In the Old Testament, avodah is a seamless life of worship, work, and service. These three, I want to give you three verses for translational context here about this word avodah. In Psalm 104, verse 23, it says, Then man goes out to his avodah, to his labor until evening. He goes out to his work until evening. Exodus 8.1, this is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship or avodah me. There it has the word worship of what Moses says to Pharaoh. Joshua 24.15, But as for me and my household, we will avodah, or serve the Lord. So it has all those contexts built into the word avodah. Our daily work was designed pre-fall to be wholly integrated with worship. We were designed for both worship and work. When you work and you go to work, you also go to worship the Lord. Okay, that's working the garden. Now, Let's look at caring and keeping the garden or attending to it in Genesis 2.15. This is the idea of shepherding the creatures and the creation for the sake of the creatures and cre creation of the garden. I touched on this in Genesis 1 a little bit, but I want to return to it here from human perspective. We're supposed to actually, in our working, we're supposed to be thinking about the creation and caring for it, making sure it's well tended and cared for as an outworking of what we do, not selfishly, but selflessly. Okay, I have a picture here of three objects that I'd love to show you. These are very odd objects. Our, our work reflects values and it reflects knowledge, okay? The first picture here is a teapot for masochists. When they pour the tea, they pour it all over themselves and burn themselves. The second object is a dribble glass. So when you try to drink out of the dribble glass, you get wine all over the front of you because you're being selfish and keeping it to yourself. And then the third is a thirsty watering can. When you try to pour it out, it pours back into itself. Doesn't do much good, right? So, but flip all these around, put the spout on the other side. You're pouring tea for your neighbor rather than yourself. Take the top off the glass. You can share that glass of wine with the person sitting across from you at the table. And then the watering can, if it's faced the right way, it will actually quench the thirst of a thirsty place. The tools and technology that we create and we build, the systems, the objects, reflect human knowledge, but they also reflect human values. God calls us, when we think about caring keep, and keeping or tending, to actually think about those values as we actually make those objects and work on those systems in our everyday life. When you reflect on your work, do you reflect on the values that you embed in what you create? Now, number three, finally, let's consider the human reflex to notice and name that we find in 2.20. Adam is naming the created order. God wants us to know our context so well and the people in it that we give names to and recognize the ongoing flourishing of every single creature that we impact. 
to see who is present, to see who's missing, to lead and manage in a personal manner. So, so far, to summarize, we looked at the original state of work, where work is a partnership with God, designed by God to reflect the seamless rhythm of work, worship, and outward service that flows naturally from our love of God and our neighbor. Now we want to turn to why work doesn't often feel that way, okay? Big idea number three. This is Genesis chapter three, what scripture says about the brokenness of our work, what I call the broken scope, Genesis 3.8. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, the ish and the isha, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, I don't know if you, how well you are acquainted with fig trees. In my backyard, there is a fig tree that was given to Rebecca and I when our second child was born. And it's now very, very large. It requires a ladder, just like that painting by Nigel, to actually reach the top of it. Um, and so this is kind of a ha-ha moment in the Bible. So we harvest figs from our fig tree from August through September. It's a large overflowing fig harvest. But that harvest requires long sleeves and pants to actually harvest. Why? Well, fig sap is acidic to the point of creating itchy, splotchy, third-degree burns on your skin if you leave it there too long. The very first form of technology that humans create apart from God was a covering for our guilt and shame, yes, but the very first form of technology that humans create apart from God had unwanted bodily side effects. The very first form of technology after eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil became a form of self-sabotage in our literal cover-up. Okay. Next, I want to turn your attention to the phrase at the end of verse 8, in the cool of the day. What does that phrase bring to mind for you? A day like today. Between services, I walked around the building three times and prayed. Okay. Jesus was walking in the garden for his morning stroll, as he had done for many many, perhaps thousand or even millions of days prior. He was looking for his friends and partners in creation, Ish and Isha. He asked the man Ish and woman Isha, where are you? Jonah Hooper three weeks ago asked the question, who are you? As we came to Genesis 1 to 3. Um, but today we're asking of Genesis 3. The Lord is asking us a similar question, one instead that's aimed at Passion and purpose, not necessarily identity. Where are you? This moment was the first time that God had to ask this question. A question that he asks each of us as well. If this was me walking in the garden and my kids were acting in rebellion, I probably would have asked in a very angry tone, what are you doing? Right? But not God. His tone was different. And his question was different as well. Where are you? It was kind of a cosmic game of hide and seek. What was really under that question is, can you do your work in front of Jesus' presence? 
or do you want to hide from Jesus' presence when he sees your work? I have a little secret here. Jesus actually knew what they were doing and where they were. They were running and hiding from him. What else did Jesus know? He knew that we had chosen not to trust God. We had chosen to run from his plan. We had chosen to pursue our own will and not his. We had chosen not to wait on his timing and wisdom in our work, picking fruit and making berry pickers. We were ashamed immediately because our eyes had been opened. Adam and Eve both realized the predicament that they were in and that they needed a covering. They needed a savior. They needed a rescuer. The shame was more than a need to cover their very itchy bodies now covered in fig sap. It was a need to cover their whole selves, their actions, their minds. They couldn't do that for themselves. So what does Jesus do? The one who had thwarted them, who knew them, now acts graciously on their behalf. He sees as he always does. He reflects. And now he fills the void with creativity and activity. He sacrifices animals to make clothes for them. A hint to the later blood sacrifice that would come as he would make himself an offering for all of humanity. And a hint to the reality that God honoring stewardship in this world also requires self-sacrifice. He then declares to them the very real effects of what life would be like outside the garden. Because you have done this, work and death are now introduced. The thorns and thistles will affect your work. You will have pain in child rearing, and instead of working with the grain of creation, you're now going to work against the grain of creation. Why? Because I love you, and I want you to know that you need a savior. You see, death was introduced by God at the hand of God, to cover our sin and shame. Outside the garden, people don't live forever. We see this as a failure of our system, but I think God instead sees it as a gift, a gift of mercy towards us. We only have glimpses of it now, but the reality is that there's a fuller return to the garden that is coming. But that return will require us all to die and to be reborn just like Jesus. In our work outside the garden, we need a savior. And the worst thing that could have been done for us is to live in that state of perpetual brokenness. So, to experience that eternal state of brokenness apart from our Savior would be a very sad state. Jesus would labor, later weep in the garden over Jerusalem, but my gut tells me that he wept here as well, over this garden too. They know not what they do. There's no way back. There's only moving forward. The only way forward is out of the garden with Christ. So in Genesis 3, 24, what does Jesus do now? He drives them out. I've always thought of the term drive negatively here. But in light of the call to steward, in light of the call to be a shepherd, it's actually a pastoral term, a redemptive one. A leadership term. The shepherd, in, in his care and keeping and tending, drives his herd from danger to safety. The safer place, the better place for Adam and Eve was not inside, but outside the garden because of their rebellion. 
And Jesus was behind them, encouraging them and driving them, pushing them forward every step of the way. I'm sure they were weeping. But again here, I think Jesus was right there weeping with them as well. As we end today, I want to ask you, are you walking with Jesus in your work in the cool of the day? Or are you walking alone? In your work, are you letting Jesus shepherd you outside of the garden? Are you letting him go before you? Are you letting him hem you in behind? Are you letting the fallenness you find in work drive you back to your Savior? You aren't alone. Let Jesus love you and shepherd you in your work as you work for him and you worship him each day. Amen?